if a child told you that his father was always working, you might be concerned, right? If that child's mother, the man's wife, told you that her husband was always working, your concern might deepen. (laughs) If even the man's supervisor confirmed that he was always working, you might understandably label the man a workaholic. Someone who compulsively overworks. Someone who compulsively overworks, who works long hours, often as a way to cope, or maybe not cope, with difficult issues in his or her life. But if you heard that Jesus was always working, would you be concerned? Would you label him a workaholic? Let's look together this morning at John chapter 5. And see what this passage, this chapter, the beginning of this chapter tells us about this topic of Jesus working. Jesus always working. Now, you may remember, as you're turning there, looking there, you may remember that the Gospel of John is a book of signs. It's a book of signs. Seven, in fact. These are miracles that the Apostle John chose to include in his account, in order to persuade and strengthen his readers in terms of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. I believe this had a twofold purpose. It was to persuade those who had never believed, and it was to strengthen those who had already believed by presenting this powerful picture of Christ, the one that we find here in the Gospel of John. Now, these seven signs, as John calls them, you may remember that in chapter 2 of this gospel, we heard about the first sign, the first sign of Jesus that John includes here. It was changing water into wine at a village called Cana in Galilee. Now, at the end of chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, we find the second sign. Interestingly, we return in the, in the narrative, in the text, we return to the village of Cana for that second sign. What was that second sign? It was the healing of the royal official's son. You remember the man came to him about his son. Um, you may recall that what was striking about that second sign is that Jesus... And the sick boy, at the time of the boy's healing, were separated by about 16 or 17 miles when it actually took place. Jesus announced his healing, and the boy was healed. Now, I wanted to remind you about those miracles, those signs, because this morning, we've come to sign number three. Sign number three. Let's read about that sign in verses 1 through 9 of John chapter 5. Look at it with me. John tells us, beginning in verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We have no idea which one it was. It really does not matter, right? He does not name the feast. It could be any of them. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gates, a pool 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Colonnades are long walkways uh, flanked by pillars. So this, this pool is still, you can go to the remains of this pool to this day and you will find the outside colonnades, four of them, and the pool is actually split in two, so there's an inner colonnade as well. So there it is, right there in Jerusalem to this day, this same pool. So there are this five roof colonnades. In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, John tells us. What does he mean? Well, the blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to this man, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, probably dragging himself, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Let's stop there. Now, some things I want you to notice about this miraculous healing. First, when Jesus asks the man about being healed, kind of a no brainer, right? Do you want to be healed? Duh. Yeah, of course I want to be healed. But there's a point to it. When he asked the man about being healed, notice how the man is thinking in terms of the healing power of the water, not the healing power of Jesus. Your Bible, look at it for a minute. Does it include verse 4? Do you see verse 4 in that chapter? So your Bible may include verse 4. It should not include verse 4. So most modern translations have removed that verse, rightly so, because it's just not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And it's not a debatable case. It's just not there in even the small uh, fragments of the New Testament and the large codices, these large books of the the New Testament. It's just not there. What we know about verse 4, if your Bible doesn't include it, it's probably in the footnote. And you can see it there in the footnote. If it's included in your footnotes, then you'll see that it really represents a scribe's point. It makes sense as a scribe's note about what the Jews believed in terms of the healing power of the water when it was stirred. They believed an angel came down and stirred the water and and that the first person who could get into the water was going to be miraculously healed by that. Is that true? Is that what they believed at the time? We're not sure, but it does make sense of that. And it could simply be a little bit of oral history that traveled alongside the preservation of Scripture. And a scribe said, I'm going to put it here in the margin because it's helpful to understand what this guy means by I can't get into the water in time. But sometimes those scribal notes we know from other manuscripts found their way right into the text. <laughs> and by the time that Robert Stephanus went and numbered the New Testament, gave it, gave it verses, it was versified, he included that as one of them. That's why your Bible doesn't have a verse 4 because it wasn't known that it wasn't part of the text, original text early on. 
So that helps us know a little bit about why this man wants to get to the water. He's thinking about the healing power of the water rather than the healing power of Jesus. So it's some belief like that. It helps us make sense of this man's desire. Second, a second point about what we just heard. Notice how Jesus initiates this sign. Jesus initiates this sign. The first sign took place after... His mother requested that he help this newly this newlywed couple. The second sign, like I mentioned before, came at, because of a request from the dying boy's father. That's the end of chapter 4. But in this instance, Jesus himself initiates the healing. There's not even a mention of the man's faith, is there? A lot of times in the Gospels, we'll read about the person's faith. Jesus will call them to faith. Jesus will provoke their faith. He'll stir their faith up. Here, there is no mention of the man's faith at all. Jesus simply tells the man to get up, take up his bed. That's a, that's a mat. That's a pallet of some sort that he slept on. And then the man, it said, and he tells him to get up, take your bed, and walk. The man seems to sense the immediate healing described in verse 9. And he responds. He gets up. Finally, a third point here about these these opening verses. Notice the details John includes about the length of the man's affliction. Length of the man's affliction. Verse 5. The man had been disabled for 38 years. The man is not 38 years old. He's older than that, and we'll see why. He's, he's, he's older than that. But he's been an invalid for 38 years. The word used here does not tell us whether he was paralyzed completely, whether he was just lame and, and struggled with one leg over another. It's not real clear, but we know that he was in need. I don't think this 38 years, though, is simply an interesting factoid that John is providing for us. John is sure to tell us in verse 6 that Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. He knew that he had been there a long time. Why mention this? Well, it may be a reference to the supernatural knowledge of Jesus that uh, we've already heard about in this book on several occasions. Remember when he knew about Nathaniel far off in chapter 1? Remember how he knew the woman that he had met at the well? He could sense, I think, the heart of Nicodemus when he talked to him. Uh, There's all these indications that Jesus has this knowledge that is far beyond the natural, normal knowledge of any human being. And that makes sense to us if we've read the opening verses of the Gospel of John. Well, it may be a reference to this knowledge that Jesus possessed John may also want to highlight the compassion of Jesus. He knew how this man had suffered. He knew the many years of agony that this man had been through as an invalid. But here's another factor. And this helps us when we're learning about the gospel of John. This helps us to make sense of why, possibly, why John chose the signs that he did for his gospel. He tells us at the end of the book, there were so many things that Jesus did and said that not even all the books in the world could contain them, right? You know, a little bit of hyperbole there, but he's saying, look, 
There is so much that Jesus did and said that I can't record for you. And there's indications within this book that John knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That he knew about that tradition of those stories of Jesus. And that he's wanting to provide something different and complementary in his gospel. So he only chooses seven. Only seven signs. But why these seven signs? Well, I think one factor is the hard-to-fake aspect that characterizes all of these signs. These are hard-to-fake miracles. Jesus didn't simply change a cup of, of water into wine, did he? You could have done that maybe with sleight of hand in some way. He changed 120 gallons of water into wine. He trans- Jesus didn't simply attend to the sick boy in person like a doctor might. He spoke from miles away and the timing of that healing was corroborated by third-party witnesses of when it took place. Now, the same is true here. The same is true here. This man is not an unknown, mildly ill beggar, right? He's not a, an unknown, quasi-ill beggar. This man was an invalid for 38 years. He was probably a fixture there at that pool that people would have known, at least seen. So once again, Jesus Christ demonstrates his incomparable power as we see here. He speaks a word. This power to heal. This power to restore. I love what the prophets declared in Isaiah chapter 35. Verse 2, they shall see the glory of Yahweh. Verse 4, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. Verse 6, then shall the lame leap like a deer. Wow, the coming of God attended by restoration, physical restoration. What a beautiful, how beautifully fulfilled in Jesus. But look with me at where the passage goes. Look with me at the final detail about this healing that John provides at the end of verse 9. He tells us all of these things about this healing, about the man, about Jesus, about what Jesus said to him, about where it took place, about the architecture of where it took place. But he leaves one note there at the very end, at the end of verse 9. What does it say? Now that day was the Sabbath. Well, that's an interesting little bit to hold to hold to the end, right? <laughs> why does he even mention that? Well, we, we're going to go on to see, aren't we, why it's important that John at the end says, oh, by the way, that day that this happened, it was a Sabbath day. This is what we read. Look what happens next in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed. Clearly, they know him. Somebody knows him. They see him. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They see him carrying his mat. But he answered them, uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed, 
did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. He just sunk right back into the crowd after he had healed the man. Afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him. He found this same man. He found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, the Jewish leaders, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why is it significant that this healing took place on a Saturday? That is, on the Sabbath? Because the sight of this man carrying his bedroll through the temple court or wherever they saw him gets the attention of the religious leaders, doesn't it? Though God, through Moses, had called the Israelites to rest on the Sabbath, it was later teachers who had developed detailed interpretations of that law. Interpretations that often went to extremes about what was and was not considered work on that day. Though these leaders are shocked by the man's behavior, we should be shocked by the fact that these men have no interest in investigating the miracle itself. Their only interest is in interrogating the miracle worker. Do you see that? We should be flabbergasted that this is the case. There's no indication, there's no hint that they are they marvel at all in terms of this man's healing. Even after the man mentions, this is the man who healed me. He healed me. This is why I am walking. Though it's not stated, it seems reasonable to conclude that this man is scared of these leaders. This man is scared of these leaders. We see it later in the book as well with others. He is scared of these religious leaders and he does what he can do to get out of their crosshairs. Did you pick up on that? So when he finally finds out the name of his healer, again, Jesus initiates the second meeting. (laughs) Jesus again, initiating. Once he finds out his name, this man goes back to the Jewish leaders And tells them what he knows. He does not want to have anything else to do with this whole situation. But verses 16 through 18 seem to be a summary. Take a look at those. Those verses seem to be a summary, given the language used, of numerous interactions that Jesus had with some of the Jewish leaders about the Sabbath. You may recall that the other Gospels contain other stories of healings and confrontations 
on and about keeping the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath, on the Sabbath itself. But in this instance here, notice how Jesus responds to their criticism. What does He say? Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am working. Now what what exactly is Jesus saying here? What does that mean? Why respond this way? If the Sabbath day was a recognition of the seventh day of the creation week, then Jesus wants His listeners to understand that God did not rest and does not continue to rest because He was exhausted or because He had nothing else to accomplish. On the seventh day, God rested, or maybe a better translation, God ceased from His original work of creation. That's what we find in Genesis. God ceased from His original work of creation. That is what the Hebrews were to recognize and honor on the seventh day of their week. But cessation from that original work, God's cessation from that original creation work, did not and does not mean inactivity for God up until now or up until the time that Jesus spoke these words. I love how one of the passages that we read, the same chapter we heard this morning from our five-on-five readings, this is how one of those readings from last week expressed this idea. Nehemiah says, You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, past tense. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens while all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you, present tense, preserve. You preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you, present tense. There are many psalms that speak to this point as well, that God sustains, that God upholds, that God preserves His creation. And that's just one of God's ongoing works. As God revealed through the prophet, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, verse 10. How does Jesus express these same truths to the Jews in John 5? Verse 17, My Father is working until now. My Father is working until now. The Sabbath was never meant to prescribe rest from the mission and mercy of God. That's not what it was for. This is exactly why Jesus continues in verse 17. My Father is working until now. His mission, His mercy, His purposes are being accomplished. His care for all creation is being accomplished. He is at work and so am I, says Jesus. I am working. As Jesus told His disciples in the previous chapter, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He's working, I'm working, I'm fulfilling His work. John introduces us here to what will be an ongoing theme from this point on. This theme of opposition. 
that we find in the Gospel of John. We see it in the other Gospels as well, but here's where it really becomes evident. You'll remember in John chapter 2, he was questioned by the religious leaders after driving those money changers out of the temple court. He was questioned, but it didn't tell us much more about their reaction. Here, it is abundantly clear that they've set their sights on him. The target. He's their target. They are going after him. They're going to kill him. They're going to, they want him dead. This theme will continue in the book. And John here gives two reasons right out of the gates. Two reasons why, why this opposition. Why this antagonism. Verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Also verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They were persecuting him. Then they wanted to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their estimation, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's John writing. That's not the Jews saying you're making yourself equal. That's John saying as Jesus, when Jesus called himself, God talked to God as father in the way that he did, he was making himself equal with God. The Jews recognized that. The way Jesus spoke about God as His Father, especially when you combine that with His other claims about Himself and his, the authoritative way that He taught, that address of God communicated that He believed Himself to be of the same nature as God. Notice that John, if this was wrong, notice that John does not correct this conclusion. If it was wrong, John would have immediately corrected it and said, but, Je- but Jesus wasn't saying that. No way was he saying that. Oh, that's blasphemy. He wouldn't say that. He does not correct that. That's not surprising to us, of course, because John, from the opening verses of this gospel, this whole book, he has already described how the Word was with God and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. So once again, John describes how a miracle by Jesus, one of these signs, is more than just an astounding act. It goes beyond that. It provides an opportunity for Jesus here to confirm a claim that we find in the other Gospels. Matthew 12, verse 8, says it well. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now think about those words with me. My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. What did that look like in John chapter 5? What did the work of Jesus look like in John chapter 5? It meant healing. It meant healing. It was the work of Jesus as healer. And it didn't matter which day of the week it was. The mission and mercy of God were and are always at work through Jesus Christ. The mission and mercy of God were and are always at work through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know 
Jesus Christ as your healer. As your healer. Do you believe his claim in verse 17? Do you personally believe that claim? Do you believe it for today? I am working. Through his spirit, do you hear Jesus speaking to you this morning? I am working. I'm working. I'm working. Right now, I'm working. I am at work. Isn't it interesting that the first sign that John recorded for us had to do with Jesus' power to transform creation? The second sign moved to Jesus' power to restore the creature, the human being. But that was from a distance. But now, with this third sign, we see Jesus powerfully present on the scene. Power to restore, working directly with the person afflicted. So there's a progression, isn't it, of the signs. Power over creation. Power to restore the creature. Power to restore the creature, yet right there, close by. Jesus draws closer. I am working, says Jesus. Now, I want us to think about what this passage reveals to us about Jesus, the healer. If you know Jesus as your healer, if you want to know Jesus as your healer, look with me at what's revealed here in this passage, the details that are provided. First of all, I want you to see that you may not always understand the healing work of Jesus. You may not always understand the healing work of Jesus. We see that in this passage here. The healing work of Jesus doesn't always require that the person being healed has some kind of correct transactional information with Jesus, right? That there's a, oh, you're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and you're going to heal me, and this is the reason why, and I'm going to be grateful, and, and all of those things. No, 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 no. We see here... This man, who had been an invalid for 38 years, did not know who Jesus was. Right? He didn't know him. He was a stranger to him. He didn't understand how Jesus wanted to help him. When Jesus talked to him about healing, he didn't get it. He had his ideas about how that healing was going to take place. He couldn't have imagined what Jesus was was saying to him. And afterwards, look at him. He still doesn't seem to get it. He seems more concerned with getting out of the spotlight than getting to know the light of the world, Jesus Christ. This is very different than some people who were healed by Jesus who wanted to follow Jesus, who wanted to be with Jesus because of that. He doesn't know what's going on. Our questions, our confusion, even our ungratefulness do not disqualify us when it comes to God's healing work through Jesus. Does that mean we don't need to have faith? Of course not. God calls us to faith. It just means that when we don't have faith, it does not mean God is not at work. God will fulfill His purposes as we just heard, and we praise God for that. Number two, second, 
your healing is always a result of Jesus' initiative. Your healing is always a result of Jesus' initiative. As we saw in this passage, it wasn't the man seeking out Jesus. Sorry, it wasn't, it wasn't this man seeking out Jesus. Jesus sought out the man. Twice. <laughs> While the gospel accounts confirm many instances where people came to Jesus for healing. This man is a beautiful reminder that at the end of the day, God always takes the initiative when it comes to our healing. Because our healing is always part of His big, grace-filled plan for our lives. And that's His initiative we love because He first loved us. And because He takes the initiative, And because He gives the healing, guess what? He always gets the glory. He always gets all the glory. Amen? Always. Glorify Him now. Take a moment in the the quietness of your heart and glorify God that He took the initiative in your life. Healing through Jesus Christ. Number three, take a look. Jesus' healing power is the power of God. Jesus' healing power is the power of God. John doesn't shy away from this radical truth that Jesus is God, does he? He does not shy away from that at all. That's the whole point of why he's writing. So while healing can come to us through many channels for many reasons... We need to know and we need to continue to trumpet the fact that the greatest healing, the truest healing, the most enduring healing comes from God and God alone. He is our healer. Even when He uses other people, other resources, other methods to bring us healing in some part of our life, we need to recognize that what we need most is from Him and even what we need less than most, is from Him as well. It's Him working to provide for us. Is God, through Christ, your healer this morning? And that leads to a final point. Fourth, whatever the felt need, whatever the felt need, Jesus reminds us He reminds us of our need to be healed from sin. Whatever the felt need, Jesus reminds us of our need to be healed from sin. His need for physical wholeness was obvious to the man. The man knew this about himself. He needed physical restoration. Everyone who knew the man knew the man needed physical restoration, didn't they? But look again at what Jesus tells him in verse 14. John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The clear implication here, at least it's a a strong possibility, is that sinful choices had led to this man's injury or affliction. That's why I said the man is not 38. He's older than that. He's done something. He's run with the wrong group of people. He's done something where he's been injured badly. So much so that he's lame. He's maybe paralyzed. 
Jesus understands this. Jesus knows this. And he warns the man about his choices. But I love what he does here. Now, listen, this isn't always the case. We know that from, we'll see that coming up in the Gospel of John. This is not always the case that the afflictions that we suffer are the result of our sinful choices. But they can be. They can be. That seems to be the case here. But notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to sensitize this man to sin. And in doing so, to a far worse fate than physical lameness. That's why he brings this up with this man. He wants to sensitize this man to sin and to a far worse fate than physical lameness. But notice, even though we're not told this took place, we, we know that it did take place, that when Jesus sought him out, he not only wanted to give this man a word about sin, his sin, but the man left knowing Jesus' name. How else would he have been able to tell the religious leaders who he was unless he had received the name of Jesus? You see, Jesus wanted people to know who he was. Now, he didn't always want them to share the word about what had happened, but he wanted people to know that it was him who had healed them, that they would connect that blessing with the name of Jesus. They would look to him. And that's what he does with this man. This morning, you may have needs that you are bringing to God You may have needs that you want to bring. You know you need to bring to God, to Jesus as healer. And He wants you to bring those. He wants you to bring those needs. If you are struggling physically, if you are struggling emotionally, if you are struggling relationally, if you are struggling vocationally and financially, whatever the need is, whatever area of your life needs healing, bring it to Jesus. Bring it to God through Jesus. But in a culture like ours, in which it is easier to talk about victimhood and brokenness than guilt and sinfulness, it's so important that we remember our ultimate need to be healed from sin. Let me say that again because it is an incredibly important point. We don't always, as the fish, know the water in which we're swimming. In a culture like ours in which it is easier to talk about victimhood and brokenness, rather than guilt and sinfulness, it's so important that we remember that our ultimate need is to be healed from sin. Sin's effects. The things that are pressing on you this morning, so heavy and so hard, maybe those relational, emotional, financial, physical, whatever they might be. But we cannot lose sight, brothers and sisters, Friends, we cannot lose sight of the fact that our greatest need is the need that Jesus came to address. This is what Peter emphasized when he wrote about Jesus as Messiah. 
about Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecy, prophecies found in Isaiah chapter 53. This is 1 Peter chapter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been what? You have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isn't this what Jesus was telling the man in John chapter 5? That he might die to sin and live to righteousness? And he, he had not yet accomplished the work, but he was always pointing people to the work. John tells us about it over and over again. Unless I am lifted up, Jesus said. Unless that head of wheat falls into the ground and dies. God so loved the world. John tells us that he gave his one and only son. You see, this is Jesus as healer, capital H. This is Jesus, the one who came to save us from our greatest need, even though it may not be your greatest felt need this morning. This is our greatest need. It's the great need that Jesus sought the man out a second time to tell him, sin no more. Because brother, let me tell you, there's a far worse fate that awaits for you, that awaits you if you do not know forgiveness from God. Far worse than 38 years paralyzed, hopeless, desperate, laying by that pool. Far worse. Friends, we need to be sensitized to that because we, we have a major problem with defining our needs. Defining our deepest needs. We have to start where God starts, where Jesus starts, with our need to be healed from sin. By His wounds you have been healed. Is that true of you? I pray that it is this morning. Does that healing of Jesus keep us from all sin? No. But it keeps us from the eternal consequences of all sin. Praise God. And wonderfully, as we see here, it gives us power to live to righteousness. To die to sin and to live to righteousness. That's what Christ accomplished for you on the cross for all who will believe. See, Jesus is always working. Jesus is always working. But that doesn't mean he's a workaholic, does it? Not at all. In fact, it demonstrates that he is instead a living Lord and a faithful friend. A living Lord and a faithful friend. He will not sink back into the crowd as he did in John chapter 5. He will remain with you. He will abide with you. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Just like Jesus came back a second time to that man. We know now after the cross, because of the cross and empty tomb, Jesus remains with us. He will continue to take initiative in our life, right? Making us more like Himself. He continues to be our Savior each and every day. I love the way that Paul prayed. Let's end here. I love the way that Paul prayed about Christ always working, the work of Christ, the Christ who always works in our lives, our healer. He prayed like this. 
I pray that you may be, that He, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That isn't a prayer that these people would be saved. They were already saved. It was a prayer that Christ would overflow out of their lives each day. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2? The life, right? It's, it's Christ. I, I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's Christ who now lives in me. Today, it's Christ who now lives in me. That's what it means to live to righteousness. Christ the healer affecting power through His presence to live through us. Brothers and sisters, friends, let's give thanks to God for Jesus, our healer. Would you pray with me?